from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. It's our conversation every week in which we explore those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I founded the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project 30 years ago, and in that same year, also started the Wharton Leadership Program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. Go to totalleadership.org. You can find all about our services that help people and organizations create harmony and improve performance in all parts of life. There's free book chapters, articles, videos, assessment tools, lots of cool stuff there at totalleadership.org. New episodes of our show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can be sure to follow us on Twitter. Our channel is SXM Business. I am at Stu Friedman. Well, I'm really excited about today's show and about um, the work that my guest is doing. National polls suggest that COVID-19 has led to increased conflict for couples in the United States, thanks to stress about economic insecurity, health issues, childcare, Uh, And it's having a disproportionate impact on mothers. My guest today has been doing research on the pandemic's impact on couples and on mothers with young children. And uh, two of her recent pieces are called My Husband Thinks I'm Crazy. And the other is Let's Not Pretend It's Fun. Jessica Salarco is Associate Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Bloomington, She earned her master's and her PhD in sociology here at the University of Pennsylvania. We're so proud of Jessica and the work she's doing now. Jessica, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Let me tell folks just a little bit about you uh, before we jump into the conversation about, about this research and what it means for working families in America. Jessica's research examines inequalities in education and family life, and she's written about these inequalities for the New York Times, The Atlantic, Inside Higher Ed, and The Conversation. She's the author of two books, A Field Guide to Grad School, Uncovering the Hidden Curriculum, which has just been published, and Negotiating Opportunities, How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in Schools, which received a 2019 Scholarly Achievement Award for the best book by the North Central Sociological Association. So, Jessica, uh, during the last few months, you and your colleagues have been studying the impact of the pandemic on well-being of mothers. Let's start with, um, let's not pretend it's fun, Uh, looking at their childcare arrangements and in-home schooling. and, and you've been exploring parenting conflicts during the pandemic as well. First, how did you get into this? Like what led you to, to take up this study? And then I want to spend most of our time uh, sharing your, with your sharing with listeners what you've learned and what it means. Yeah, so we actually started the project that became the Pandemic Parenting Study back in 2018. Uh, Essentially, I was interested at the time in understanding how mothers decide what kind of parents they want to be and then what factors get in the way of uh, doing those or making those kinds of parenting decisions, Uh, everything from breastfeeding to co-sleeping to vaccines. So we started with surveys of moms when they were pregnant um, and asked them, what kinds of decisions do you anticipate making for this baby once it's born? Um, And then we followed up with those same moms every six months after to say, okay, what decisions are you actually making? What kinds of factors got in the way of potentially making the decisions you wanted to make? And then how do you feel about maybe the differences between what you wanted to do and what you're actually doing? Um, And so we're still doing some parts of that project. But when the pandemic hit, we were still following up with those same moms. And it became very clear very quickly that so many of the moms that we'd gotten to know over the past 18 months to two years, we were having a really tremendously difficult time, had just been hit hard and had the the rug pulled out from under them in the wake of the pandemic and were scrambling to try to 
make ends meet not only financially in some cases, but also just logistically trying to manage the competing demands of work and parenting and even uh, helping their older children with schooling as well. Mm -hmm. So is this study um, focused primarily on working moms? No. So we started with a a sample of essentially any moms who came through a couple of prenatal clinics uh, here in Indiana, uh, where I am now. Um, So any mom who was pregnant uh, in her uh, roughly six months pregnant at the time was eligible if they came through these particular clinics. Um, And uh, roughly 40% of moms in our sample were not employed pre-pandemic and roughly 60% uh, were working moms before the pandemic. I see. Um, So perhaps we can start with just your general observations about how the pandemic is affecting uh, working versus non-working moms uh, differently or similarly. Sure. And so essentially what we find is that many mothers are facing tremendous challenges during the pandemic, both working moms and mothers who were not working before the pandemic. But really what seems to be the biggest factor that we've found is influencing things like mother's stress levels, anxiety levels, frustrations with their kids and their partners is how much their routines have been disrupted by the pandemic. And so if we're thinking about working moms, for example, moms who were employed pre-pandemic, many of them in the wake of the pandemic lost access to childcare, their childcare facilities closed, their children's schools closed if they had older children. Many of them were pushed into working from home for the first time uh, with their jobs. And so what that meant was that their normal routines were disrupted in so many ways. And that left those mothers who were suddenly trying to be full-time parents and full-time workers and sometimes also full-time teachers essentially feeling like failures, failures as mothers, failures as workers, and failures as, as teachers as well. And so, I mean, it's, it's hard to compare the stress of working moms to non-working moms, but for many of the non-working moms or the moms who weren't employed before the pandemic, their routine wasn't affected quite as much, mm-hmm. especially the ones who didn't yet have school-aged kids. And so for them, if they were already home pre-pandemic, kind of caring for their kids most of the time, mm-hmm. they weren't able to do many of the social activities that they relied on pre-pandemic. Um, but things weren't all that different. And that's essentially what they told us in interviews. The moms who had school-aged kids that were not working um, did have um, more stress in, in suddenly having to take on the role of teacher as well. Um, and many of them sounded more like uh, employed moms in terms of the stresses they were experiencing. Um, but certainly, so it seemed more about sort of how much their routine was disrupted uh, than about whether they were employed or not employed specifically pre-pandemic. Right. And if you're working, you've got more more aspects of your routine that would be disrupted. And so therefore the impact greater on, on those, on those women in in your study, right? At least in many cases. I mean, certainly there were some employed moms whose childcare was not disrupted during the pandemic. For example, if they were already relying on grandma as their primary uh, childcare provider, in many cases, grandma continued providing childcare during the pandemic. That was actually the case for a lot of the moms in our sample who worked outside the home, especially in healthcare, yeah. um, because of their sort of unstable work schedules, childcare centers often didn't work for them. Right. And so they were already relying on extended family to, right. to do that care work. Although you, you did say grandma, was that, was that because all the grandparents in your sample were women? At least the ones who were providing full-time care uh, as, mm-hmm. as childcare providers, it was overwhelmingly grandmas who were doing that work. Okay, well, that's that's interesting to note. I, I have some other questions about uh, grandparental support that I want to get to as this emerges as a, uh, an issue for me personally, because my career goal at this stage is to be a full-time caretaker for my grandchildren. But um, we'll get there uh, sure. because I, I need help on that issue, uh, as do many of our listeners. Um, so this notion of feeling like a failure let's dig into that further because it seems to me that that's kind of at the heart of what you're um explicating with your study can you say more about what you observed about women feeling like failures Sure. So essentially, we know that mothers, especially moms who are highly educated and working in in elite professions, face a a confluence of norms. They face intensive motherhood norms that tell them that they have to sacrifice everything for their children, that they have to uh, put their children's well-being first. At the same time, they also face ideal worker norms that tell them that they should be fully devoted to their jobs, especially if they've invested years and years and years of education and and working uh, tremendously hard to get to the levels that they are in their jobs. And so for those mothers, they're, they're faced with these 
almost impossible sets of pressures that when you try to be both a, a, a full-time worker and a full-time parent with those kinds of intensive expectations at the same time, something has to give. And in many cases, mothers had to sacrifice the kinds of standards to which they usually held themselves. So letting their kids watch far more TV, for example, uh, than they normally would, and then feeling guilty about that afterward, um, mm -hmm. or not getting their work done as quickly or as well as they wanted to, um, or not being able to take advantage of all of the opportunities that they had in their job, or do mm -hmm. all the work that they would normally do. And so it's that, that sort of feeling of not being able to meet the standards that society has for them and that they have for themselves. And how did that show up? Like, how did, how did you uh, see that in your interviews and survey research with these mothers, this sense of um, uh, not being able to meet expectations? Sure. And so, I mean, the, the, the title of this one piece, Let's Not Pretend It's Fun, comes from uh, a mother who was talking to us about how essentially she felt like she was working from home and also providing full-time childcare. Her husband was also working from home full-time. Uh, and she just said, like, I feel like, where's the time going? I feel like I'm, um, I, I'm putting all these hours into work and I'm putting all these hours into childcare and I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything with either. And I feel like I'm doing terrible at both. Mm -hmm. And then she was talking to us about how her, her mother-in-law kept trying to tell her, oh, like, aren't you enjoying all ah, the extra time at home with your daughter? This is about mother's-in-law. Okay, oh, of course it, it is. Of course it is. And so she's like, my mother-in-law just keeps telling me, oh, like this time it's so precious. You should be enjoying this extra time you with your daughter. You should be like, enjoying you should, it. Yes. You should be. This should be as key. And she's like, but let's not pretend this is fun. She's like, this this would be so much better if our daughter was back in childcare uh, and if, if daycare were open and we were able to actually get the support that we need. And so Wait. it was... She said that to her mother-in-law? Uh, no, she said that to me. I don't think she said that to, my, to her mother-in-law. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. So complete your thought that what she really needed was not her mother-in-law scolding her for not enjoying herself, but... But childcare, but essentially stable, reliable access to the support that she needed or a break from work or a break from the responsibilities of the work she was supposed to be doing. So where is her husband in all this? Don't answer that yet. Hang on. I want to remind listeners, uh, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. My guest today is Jess Salarco. She's Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Indiana, Bloomington, an illustrious alum of the University of Pennsylvania Sociology Department, and we're discussing her work on inequities in family life in pandemic times. So where were their husbands? Great question. So certainly many dads in the wake of the pandemic have stepped up their game, have been doing more in terms of childcare. Mm. In many cases, though, that's not enough to offset the extra work that mothers are doing. Uh, so, for example, we talked to I talked to one mom who both she and her husband were Ph.D. students. Um, and so they, they literally had the same job uh, and they were trying very hard to split the child care evenly. And, and they actually came pretty close to splitting the hours evenly. Mm -hmm. But they ended up working it out so that the the, the husband was taking the early shift. Um, and they both preferred to work in the mornings, but he was taking the early shifts and mom was taking the afternoon shifts. And by the time she'd spent the full morning providing care for their toddler, she was so exhausted that it was really hard for her to actually get any work done, to actually be productive with the work that she was supposed to be doing. And then she'd end up falling asleep and taking a nap when her daughter was taking a nap in the afternoon and then staying up until midnight to actually get her work done and then starting the whole thing all over again tomorrow, the, the next morning. And so it it gets at this idea that even when dads were, were trying to be highly involved, mom often made sacrifices to be the ones who put their their husband's careers first and said it's okay uh, like you can have we'll privilege his time and that happened with couples with with relatively equal jobs and it happened even more so with couples where uh, the husband earned more than their wives uh, those were the couples where those disparities were most pronounced and that mom would literally say his job was worth more than mine. He's earning more money. And so if someone has to sacrifice during the pandemic, it's riskier for us to sacrifice his job than it is for me to sacrifice mine. Mm -hmm. And so those were the moms who said, you know what, my, it's not worth the extra income from my job. I'm going to take, I'm going to take an unpaid leave, or I'm going to think about leaving the workforce, or I'm going to think about stepping back in my career instead. And so I think it gets at sort of the, the deeper pay gaps that we have in our society and how that's mm -hmm. driving couples to make decisions about whose career is quote unquote more valuable. Uh, well, it has forever, budget. right? That, that's yeah. been a, a trend throughout uh, your lifetime, certainly, uh, right? Uh, that, has, that has persisted. And what I'm taking from what you're saying about what you're observing in pandemic times is that that 
that rift, that gap, that division between uh, income for men and for women is is exacerbating is has been exacerbated by the extraordinary pressures of the uh, pandemic uh, on families. Is that right? Absolutely. That's the way it seems from our data, that essentially if you have inequalities within the household in terms of who is earning more, that can lead couples to make decisions that privilege the higher earner in terms of whose work gets prioritized uh, when someone has to take time to watch the kids. Right. So you collected the primary data for the study at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Uh, Around March and April. Do I have that right? Yeah, April and May mostly. And then we're in the process of going back and talking to those same moms again right now, doing some more surveys and, and okay. going to interview both the moms and their partners this time around as well. Um, before we get into uh, you know, the relationship conflicts that you observed and, and also uh, where people found greater joy as a result of the disruptions in their lives, um, what can you say presently about how things have shifted as we are deeper into pandemic times? Sure. So we've we've done some interviews with moms since that early stage of the pandemic. And, and I think it's, it's really, the situation hasn't improved much. In some cases, mothers have been able to put their children back in childcare or schools have reopened. And that helps. That has certainly helped take the pressure off for moms who've been able to um, find childcare again. But in many cases, because of the risks, uh, families are worried about sending their kids back to childcare, even if daycare centers are open. They're worried about schools being safe for their kids, uh, especially here in Indiana with case numbers continuing to rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so essentially, I think it's important to note that it, it's easy to just tell mothers, well, schools are open, send your kids back, it'll be fine. Uh, but that ignores the fact that our, our schools and our child care centers are deeply underfunded right now. There was a report that came out early in the pandemic from the Council of Chief State Schools Officers saying that public schools would need $254 billion to reopen safely. And the CARES Act only gave schools $13 billion. So that's a huge shortfall in terms of the money that schools needed in order to actually open safely. And so because of that, because of the the underinvestment in in making schools safe and the underinvestment in childcare centers that we've seen forever, there's there's not necessarily the guarantees in place for families to feel like it's a safe decision to send their kids to school or to send their kids to childcare. Uh, my youngest child is a teacher, a special ed teacher in Boston. She's a University of Pennsylvania graduate from the class of 2016. I talk about her a lot on the show um, because I'm just so proud of her. Uh, today's her birthday, actually. Um, and I, I mention her here because I talk to her a lot about what it's like uh, being on the front lines of education in uh, urban America. And it's, uh, it's really disheartening to see the kinds of uh, you know, inattention and underinvestment that certainly during the current you know, administration has been, uh, you know, the, I mean, generally, but, you know, much worse these last four years um, in, in childcare and early and throughout the careers of students, their, their education. Um, do you, do you have any evidence from your studies or just from, from other work that's being done that the uh, greater awareness about among parents, uh, particularly working parents, about the value of educators in their lives <laughs> in, in terms of the work that educators do, that that's going to change things and create a, a greater uh, ground well, groundswell of support for, for educators and, and teaching, uh, generally speaking, in our society or not? I hope so, but I'm not confident in it in, in the sense that I, I think there's there's certainly a greater appreciation of, of how hard it is to help kids learn. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, the way that our society has long talked about schooling and, and often blamed teachers for kind of uh, whenever we see inequalities in student test scores, teachers are often the first ones to be blamed uh, for, for, for not doing enough. And so I think that kind of rhetoric has also seeped into debates and uh 
kind of back and forth backlash that we've seen debates between parents and educators in the wake of this pandemic. There's been a lot of frustration among many working parents about schools not being physically open and sort of blaming teachers for not wanting to go to work. There's been a lot of frustration among teachers directed toward parents of trying to put their lives at risk to go into the classroom. And so I think rather than everyone seeing that this is a failure of leadership at the top, that this is a failure uh, in terms of getting the pandemic under control, a failure in terms of funding schools adequately, a failure in terms of making sure that families have the resources that they need to adequately support their kids at home or to take time off from work uh, and, and keep food on the table. Uh, instead of blaming up, they're blaming each other. Uh, and so I worry that it's, it's only going to exacerbate um, families' lack of trust in schools and schools' frustrations with families as well. Okay, Jess, now you're making me cry. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, sociology is, is really the dismal science, not economics. <laughs> <laughs> Say more about what you mean by that. Uh, I mean, so economics is often called the, 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 the dismal science, but I, I mean, certainly sociology, especially when we're talking about inequalities and when we're talking about social problems, it does not often have a super hopeful view of the future. <laughs> no, but we need to see reality as it is if we're going to make it better. And your work is helping us to do that. So uh, I want to get into what you found about relationships in pandemic times. Um, but while we're on the subject of, of social policy, uh, what would you say to listeners if, who were interested in trying to affect social policy with respect to education and support for working families, which, as you point out, is, uh, is as pronounced as it ever was right now? I mean, I think we know from decades of research that one of the best ways to support, especially mothers, when it comes to working and when it comes to having the financial resources that they need to, to be secure in their relationships and in their families, is to ensure that they have access to affordable, reliable, accessible childcare. Uh, and so that means ideally starting kind of coupling policies from birth with things like extended paid maternity leave to universal childcare uh, to uh, universal pre-K and, and fully funded public schooling so that there is a sort of robust network and system of supports in place from the time when a child is born uh, up through the time when that child finishes high school to make sure that, that families are getting the support that they need to educate their children, to care for their children, um, and to allow mothers to maintain their engagement in the workforce. Um, and so we know that that leads to higher rates of, of uh, financial stability and well-being, that that can help mothers uh, in order to uh, better support themselves to avoid, uh, we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, kind of keep them secure in leaving problematic relationships if they're trapped in them, um, if they have access to their own income, their own health insurance. So any type of support, uh, especially universal child care and, and adequately funded public schooling. And then also things like universal health care uh, to take that pressure off the families, paid sick leave, uh, paid uh, paid family leave that families can use when they have disruptions, uh, ensuring that, that, that caregivers can remain connected to the workforce, even when they have to take time off and, and making sure families have access to resources they need in the meanwhile as well. Well, you know, most Americans agree with you and I on this, uh, on this great need in our society. And yet the political will to affect such changes seems to be lacking. Now, I know you're not a political scientist or you're not running for office now, um, but as a sociologist, what can you say about how to overcome the resistance that can, you know, continues to be met to uh, you know, any initiative or large scale initiative, certainly, or even small ones at municipal or even county levels to, uh, to provide greater support real support for working families. I mean, How do we overcome it? What, what, yeah. can, what can a listener do? I mean, I think the first thing to understand is why things don't change. And, and if we come across an inequality that has been known for decades and where there are clear policy solutions uh, that could be put in place tomorrow uh, to fix it, we have to think about, so who benefits from the status quo? And what might that kind of, so who, who, is, who is benefiting from the exploitation of especially women's unpaid and underpaid labor, the sort of reliance on women's care work in the home and in society more generally, and arguably who benefits is sort of the, the system of capitalism and especially white patriarchal capitalism um, in that uh, corporations have a lot to gain by 
benefiting from the underpaid and, and unpaid labor of their workers by pushing workers to be as committed as possible. And, and certainly when we think about sort of the, the system of patriarchy, if, if women are held to standards that push them to be the ones to disproportionately do unpaid and uh, or underpaid or undervalued work at home, then that allows men to disproportionately get ahead in their careers um, and maintain the economic advantages that go along with that. And so I think we have to think about what are the forces that are preventing this uh, from, from happening as opposed to just what it would take to achieve it. And, mm -hmm. and so I, my hope is that the more people that are aware of those sort of deep structural inequalities, uh, that the more pressure there will be, uh, kind of shifting from self-blame to rage, arguably, calling congressmen, calling uh, congressional representatives, and calling uh, governors, and calling uh, state officials and local officials, and demanding better policies. I mean, I think it, it takes that sort of collective rage, and also collective uh, efforts within organizations, too. Uh, certainly, I'm working with a group of other uh, faculty and staff members who have caregiving responsibilities uh, at my own university, uh, and, and putting together recommendations for policy that need to be put in place even within the university uh, for steps that need to be taken to better support care work. And so I think that the more we can go from self-blame to, to rage and, and recognize the larger structural forces, the more room there is for collective efforts to push for change. Uh, more on what to do to affect positive change at the local and larger levels when we come back. We need to take a short break here, but don't go away. When we come back in a minute, I'll be continuing my conversation with Jessica Solarco. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I am your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Jessica Solarco. She's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Indiana, Bloomington. And we're talking about her most recent work, which focuses on how the pandemic has affected uh, families, working parents, particularly working mothers, but also working couples. Uh, so, uh, Jess, we were just before the break talking about how people can affect change at the policy level, and that's necessary. And... Um, seeing that there are structural solutions that you can influence by expressing your voice, uh, uh, your point of view to people who make decisions about policy and about um, investments in infrastructure like schools, like childcare, like family leave. Um, that, that is rising. We've, we've done a lot of work on that on this show, as you can, as you can imagine. Uh, and we can see that there's greater interest, greater um, support for organizations like families, family values at work and, and many, many initiatives, particularly in municipalities to uh, to advance the cause of greater support, real support for working families. Not like what mothers-in-law say, which is, why don't you just enjoy yourself? Now, I'm not speaking here of all mothers-in-law. I'm just speaking about those that you mentioned in the in the study, <laughs> but it, it it gets to the question of relationship conflict, which is something that you've been studying as a part of this. In your delightfully titled, "My Husband Thinks I'm Crazy," COVID nineteen related conflict in couples with young children. What have you observed on that score, Professor Calarco? Sure. So with that study, essentially what we find is that the pandemic is exacerbating longstanding conflicts between couples over oftentimes a perceived lack of support with child rearing uh, from uh, men, uh, from men partners, uh, from fathers in those relationships. And then it's also creating new sources of conflict between couples, particularly around the management of the virus itself, uh, yeah. the seriousness of COVID-19, the need for wearing masks, the need to social distance. Uh, with couples, I mean, disproportionately women taking the pandemic more seriously and, and taking a more cautious approach to managing risk and getting really? pushback from their husbands uh, for doing so. Yeah. I, 
I'm surprised. Do you think that's an Indiana thing or you think that's a, a, a generalizable uh, observation? Well, uh, national polls have shown that women are taking this more seriously. Um, and also people, and it's, it's, we think it's in part connected to sort of the fact that women tend to be more liberal leaning than men on average and that, that, that that's part of it. Um, and also that women are often the health managers within their households. Even mm. before the pandemic, mothers are disproportionately the ones who do the work of researching kids' health and family health, of making decisions, going to scheduling doctor's appointments, taking care of those kinds of logistics, being more aware of the research uh, when it comes to especially kids' health. So the uh, the title, uh, My Husband Thinks I'm Crazy, who said that and why did they say it? That quote is from a mom who is an ICU nurse uh, who has unfortunately seen patients die of COVID-19 during the pandemic. And she was reflecting on the pushback that she's gotten from her husband, who, I mean, we would now call it at the time, I don't think we would have used this term, but it, we would now reflect on as sort of a COVID denier, someone who did not think the pandemic was all that serious, someone who refused to wear a mask and, and thought it was perfectly fine to be going out in public and, and, and really wanted to reopen the economy as quickly as possible. And so she was reflecting on how her husband reacts when she says they need to, to take all those measures to keep themselves uh, and, and other people in their lives uh, as safe as possible. Wow. So this was in reaction to someone being told that her her caution about infection was irrational. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think we could call it gaslighting. Essentially, her husband telling her that she was concerned about nothing, calling her crazy uh, for thinking that this disease was serious, as we certainly know that it is from science. Uh, and at the same time, and despite her expertise as a healthcare provider herself, he was willing to question that and push back against that. And that was a serious source of conflict and frustration for them in their in their relationship. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So now... First, you make me cry, Jess, and now you make my blood boil. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, certainly hearing some of these stories, I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating to hear the, the stress that mothers are under and then also how they are being undermined in many cases in trying to take this disease as seriously as possible. Arr! Are you kidding me? I mean, I know I'm just I'm, I'm being slightly exaggerated here, but not really. It's so... So frustrating to hear of this within, especially from a nurse. Uh, and and I attribute, and of course, I have no idea who these people are and know nothing about them. But, uh, you know, just the fact that someone who, uh, this man who lives with and has children with a healthcare professional on the front lines would be denying uh, the, the, uh, the, the terrible effects of this uh, infection and how it how it spreads, I attribute that well to his ignorance, but also to the general climate of distrust about science uh, that has been propagated, uh, unfortunately, uh, in our nation these last few years. How do you make sense of it? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is certainly connected to the politicization of COVID-19 and of science more generally. Uh, this mom, uh, she reported certainly that her husband, she, she called him a strong Republican on our, our surveys that we did. She identified herself as a kind of independent leaning Republican, um, but at least within their household, she was the one who was taking this far more seriously. Uh, I mean, certainly we talked to other mothers as well who said that they're Husbands are big fans of President Trump and will do what he, if he doesn't take it seriously, then they're probably not going to either. Um, and so it's, it, there's certainly, and and being in Indiana, I mean, I think this part of why we think our, our research is, uh, doing the research here is especially useful is that this is a very politically divided community mm -hmm. in the sense that it's, it's, it's pretty evenly split. I mean, it's a college town here in Bloomington, uh, but it's surrounded by areas that are much more heavily conservative leaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us what else you discovered about um, how relationships are being affected by pandemic pressures. Sure. And so essentially we found that, I mean, it's not all couples. It, it, roughly 39% of the moms that we talked to said that they've experienced increased frustrations with their partners during the pandemic. Uh, so there's plenty of couples that, that seem to be doing okay, that maybe have some increased minor disagreements around sort of who's doing, who's going to help their kids get onto the Zoom calls for second grade uh, math lessons at the right time, or uh, whether to wipe down the groceries or not uh, when they bring them home from the store. Um, but in some cases, this, this really did lead to more serious conflicts, uh, especially in some cases. I talked to one mom, for example, who 
I mean, certainly, so she lost her job uh, early on in the pandemic. Uh, she worked in retail and pre-pandemic, for example, I, I mean, and her, her husband um, actually does work in healthcare and they didn't really have debates about COVID-19, but they did have debates about pandemic parenting and about the sharing of responsibilities within the household. Yeah. Uh, and and this, this mother who we call Audrey, before the pandemic, her and her husband had been planning on having a second child. Uh, but when the pandemic hit, their their frustration in the household increased, especially uh, Audrey had uh, found a lot of joy in the work that she was doing and, and losing that was was a blow to her identity and, and left her. She didn't like being stuck at home with her daughter all day while her husband had to leave the house to go to work and and found that frustrating, especially with the pressure to feel like she needed to keep her daughter happy and entertained the whole time. And then when her husband would come home, he would be so burned out from from working in healthcare that uh, he would be angry and frustrated. And it led to frequent conflicts between the two of them. And and she ultimately decided that she no longer wanted to have a second baby. And, and she had asked her husband to uh, to take steps to ensure that that would happen or that that would not happen. Um, oh. Particularly, she wanted him to consistently pull out during sex, for example. Uh-huh. Um, and he didn't do that. And she ended up okay. getting pregnant. And oh, wow. Talked to her after the fact. And I mean, she she called it sexual assault and she it was going to therapy for it now. And and. It plans to to stay with him, um, but it is in a very difficult place in their relationship. Um, and certainly uh, it attributes a lot of that to the stress of the pandemic and to the the toll that that has taken on both her and her husband. Um, and and certainly she's someone who, especially now, without a job um, mm-hmm. and with both a toddler and a second baby on the way, uh, is is in a very difficult situation uh, mm-hmm. wherein if she wanted to leave even that she wouldn't necessarily have the resources or the support to do so. That is a sad, sad story. Uh, and I'm sure there are others that you've heard that, um, that, that cause you to wonder uh, how, how couples could be so far apart on these sorts of questions. What, what have you been thinking about and observing with respect to those couples that are uh, figuring it out together? What, what's it take to, um, I mean, assuming you have some, some inferences from what you've been studying about what, what goes wrong, what goes right, or what, what needs to go right for, for couples to provide the kind of mutual support that they need to thrive in these very, very stressful times? I mean, I think it's it's important to note that that oftentimes it's not about any individual member of a couple's efforts, that it's more about the amount of stress that they're under and especially the external stresses that they're under. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and that that really a couple's ability to support each other and and be kind to each other and and mindful of each other's needs, especially during a pandemic, is very much a function of of how much pressure they are under at home, yeah. at work. Uh, it, it, given their economic circumstances, certainly families that were dealing with economic constraints, that it's it's hard to stay calm and patient of when you're worried about whether you'll have enough money to keep food on the table or a roof over your heads. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, we know that that economic stress is the, the leading cause of divorce. And so, and, and new parenthood is another one. And so, I mean, these are, the, as we've seen, the pandemic is, is, is just disrupting life for so many couples in so many ways. And so I think it's important not to to blame couples or to say that they're just not doing enough to, 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 to get through the pandemic or support each other, but rather to say that, that our society has, has failed families in so many ways in, in the wake of this and in not making sure that they have the, the financial support that they need in, in pushing them into impossible circumstances when it comes to work and childcare and, and schooling um, that are just adding tremendous strain on, on so many couples. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm speaking with Jessica Solarco, who is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Indiana, Bloomington. And we're talking about her research on uh, parenting in pandemic times. So, right. Uh, and you're a sociologist, and, and naturally, you're you know, your, your vantage point is to look at uh, social structure uh, and, and, you know, the, the sort of endemic uh, uh, fractures, uh, you know, in our, in our society that, that make it, that, that create conflict at the, at the local level within couples, within families. Um, 
and and that's essential uh, that we that we see that reality and of course it it helps couples families to see hey you didn't cause this i didn't cause this we're in a messed up situation that's causing us both to pull our hair out uh that that for sure helps uh what else have you observed about relationship conflict in pandemic times that that listeners ought to know i mean i think I mean, it's, 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 I feel like sociologists are often a broken record on the point of how much resources matter, uh, but really the couples that are doing the best are the ones that have the resources to, yeah. to get support. Right. The couples that have been able to either pay for a nanny or a, a babysitter uh, to come in and watch their children or have been able to have a, a, an extended family member close enough to be able to provide that kind of care, especially full-time care. Mm-hmm. Those are the couples that are doing better. If, if they have access to support, if they have access to time that they can spend alone as so many moms talk to us about how losing their time at the grocery store um, and switching to, to grocery pickup meant that they didn't get their hour a week of alone time um, and that that was a huge blow to their, oh, their wow. well-being and mental health uh, in so the, being sense at the grocery store was was a was, was there alone time was a, resp- a respite from the pressures of people yes exactly on their attention and instead they could just wander the aisles and be alone yeah. And it was therapeutic and, in a sense or, or healing or restorative. Exactly. And it, and especially for moms that now feel like that's too risky, losing that time means that they're constantly around their partners and their kids in many cases. And that that just constant, wow. that they are, they are not dealing with isolation during the pandemic. They are dealing with constant togetherness in a way that is, is deeply frustrating in many cases. Right. Let me get to the grocery store. <laughs> exactly. Which is sad that that is the, the, the place that they're going for respite and not that they're often able to, to have their own time uh, to themselves. Totally get that. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah, there's there's the convenience of door to door delivery, right? But then there is the the absence of having an occasion to remove yourself from uh, living at work, working from home, uh, and all the attendant uh, pressures on your attention, which dads face to a lesser degree, still more yeah. so now, especially if they are Trump supporters, is what you're saying. It seems that way. I mean, and like I said before, certainly many dads are doing far more than they were pre-pandemic and and are are stepping up. But it's just couples and and families are being put in such an impossible situation that that even with two partners contributing, it's still not enough. And it still means that mothers often end up being the ones who are doing the disproportionate share of the work. Now, you you did observe uh, moments of joy that were perhaps surprising. those are my words. I don't think they were yours. But what what did you find about the joy of parenting in uh, in these unusual times we find ourselves in? Sure. So essentially, we found that that for some moms, and especially moms who were dealing with tremendous stress in other parts of their lives, mm-hmm. that that spending time with their kids was a bit of a bright spot. Um, so, for example, the, 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 um, we call her Jillian, the ICU nurse mom who was was having a tough time with her husband with with conflicts over COVID-19 and, and also um, with uh, in terms of just her job and, and the, the trauma of, of, of providing that kind of care time that she spent with her with her daughter when she did come home from work. Uh, she saw that as sort of a precious time in her day. Um, and she actually, I mean, she, she even mentioned that she was really grateful when her um, employer installed uh, or put in uh, showers at work so that, that the employees could shower before they left work every day so that she could immediately hug her daughter when she got uh, home. Mm-hmm. Because just even having to wait the extra 15 minutes to shower and get undressed, sure. um, that that was, it, her daughter would be crying because she hadn't seen her mom all day. Mm-hmm. And, and just, so for her, I mean, that was a, a bright spot. Whereas for many moms who were trying to work from home with their kids there, their kids were another source of stress. Um, and similarly, even for some of the moms who lost their jobs during the pandemic, I, I talked to one mom, for example, a, um, a mom who um, was uh, unemployed right before the pandemic and couldn't find a new job during the pandemic. Um, this was a mom, a, a very low income mom who um, has never been able to take time off after her son was born uh, because she couldn't afford to. And so she was working in in retail Mm -hmm. and the, the cares act payments, uh, the, the payments at the beginning of the, of the the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, She said that 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 money allowed her to to not stress about staying home and enjoying the time with her son. She said, I went out and I bought a connect four game and I taught him how to play connect Four, her little toddler. And and, yeah. And, and she said it like, that's like, that was her joy. And, And meanwhile, she's struggling to use her, um, WIC money 
her, her essentially SNAP payments or, or food stamps for, mm-hmm. for mothers with young children mm-hmm. um, to, to find diapers because the stores are all out of diapers. And so she can't buy diapers and she's having trouble getting enough food uh, for her, for her son. And, and she's stressed about will they, what, what will happen when she's required to pay rent again? Cause they had a, a rent relief program at their apartment complex. And so she's dealing with all of these other stresses and, and just the time that she gets to spend with her son for her, that was a, a tremendous bright spot mm-hmm. uh, in terms of um, seeing the time that she finally got to spend with her son that she'd never really gotten to have before, even though she'd wanted mm-hmm. to um, as a, a bright spot in a really troubled time. We only have a few minutes left and there's so much more I want to ask you about, Jess. Let me, uh, let me return to the question of grandparents and uh, parents-in-law in specific. Uh, what, what have you uh, learned from your research about the role of grandparents in helping uh, working parents today? I mean, certainly the, the parents who were able to rely on grandparents or other extended family members, usually grandparents, uh, to provide support with pandemic parenting have, have been in a better position in many cases uh, than families who were relying on sort of formal childcare centers uh, that were more apt to close during the pandemic or that families felt were less risky. At the same time, there were so some- Let me just jump in oh, here sure. and ask, yeah. is it because of the uncertainty about the, whether that resource was going to be available and the potential disruption therefrom, that that was the problem? Or was it that having grandparents were, you know, serve some other useful purpose as well? I mean, I think it was mostly that that grandparents were often able to be flexible and responsive to families' needs, uh-huh. um, and they tended to be able to uh, adjust if families needed a couple extra hours here and there because they had an extended work commitment, or if they only needed care three days a week uh, because they uh, were a healthcare provider, and that's the kinds of shifts that they worked. Right. Um, and so it was a more responsive kind of care mm-hmm. than child care centers were often able to provide. Mm-hmm. And I mean, many child care centers, especially in April and May, just shut down uh, with very little notice and, and left families scrambling to figure out how to cover that. And, and grandparents, if they were already in place as care providers, especially um, kind of helped ease some of the uh, disruptions, uh, kind of re- reduce the, the feelings of disruption um, that, that families were facing. So and then also, you... Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 please finish your thought. Oh, no, I was just going to say that if um, some families that were able to bring in grandparents as care providers when their child care centers closed, they also I mean, that was that that required some transition, but that was also helpful, helpful for them uh, as well. All right. Any quick tips uh, about uh, serving well as a grand- grandparent in, in, in these troubled times? I mean, I would say don't undermine parents. Um, I mean, I think like like the, the, the mother-in-law that we were talking about before, I, I mean, certainly when parents when parents are dependent on chi- on their the grandparents for childcare, uh, it, it becomes very hard for them to feel like they can uh, push back if grandparents have certain uh, preferences or ideas about how parenting should happen. Um, and so, I think t- to be as supportive as possible and and to listen and to ask sort of how do you do things in your household um, that certainly makes moms pre pandemic and and during the pandemic um, especially grateful for that kind of care. That's wise. Now. Is that something, Jess, that you learned from personal experience? Not in my own case. Um, no, we've never had grandparental care. That's mostly from, especially talking to the moms that have relied on grandparents for care uh, that we've talked to from 2018 onward. All right. Well, what have you learned personally as a working mom uh, from your research that you're using? I mean, I think it's certainly wanting to do this project came in part from the fact that I was uh, among these moms early on in the pandemic mm-hmm. in terms of trying to provide care for my three-year-old at home and my first, then kindergartner, now first grader, uh, in terms of figuring out how to balance all of the demands of paid work and parenting. And, and certainly for myself, being very grateful that I have a partner who is very committed to helping a, a great deal and recognizes both the importance of the pandemic and also the importance of doing as much as he can to help uh, at home as well. So what have you learned from your research that you're using? Ah, great question. I mean, I think to to forgive myself and to Mm -hmm. not blame myself for the moments when it feels hard or when I have to let my kids watch more TV than I want to, um, to not feel bad about the stresses and and the frustrations that I'm feeling and and to recognize that it's part of a a larger systemic failure on the part of our officials from the top down in terms of the decisions that they've made and the failure that they've um, had in terms of addressing the pandemic and providing families the support that they need. 
So forgiving yourself, I, I think that's such an important idea. And no doubt, I, I, I assume you get support for that from the, your colleagues on this research project as well as from others, right? It's not something that's easily done on your own just sitting there. Am I right? Exactly. And, and certainly my hope is that the more we talk about these issues, that the more all of us will recognize that we are not in this alone and that it's not, if we're feeling frustrated, if we're feeling like failures, it's not because we're doing something wrong, but that something, someone else has failed us in this situation and that we should be working together, potentially using what little resources and time we do have to be, to be fighting for better solutions, not only during the pandemic, but after as well. Yeah, and this is a problem that American women have more than others. We're going to be talking to Katie Collins next, Collins next week about her cross-national studies that show that this is a particularly American problem. All right, well, so what's your greatest hope then in 30 seconds for how this research affects things in the world, Jess? Yeah, I mean, I hope that this turns private frustrations and private self-blame into public rage and really pushes women and, and people with caregiving responsibilities more generally to demand better support from employees and or employers and public officials uh, kind of across the economy and society. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, you are advancing the conversation with this research and I'm grateful to you and your colleagues for doing so. Thank you for taking the time to share your work with us today, Jessica. I Thank really appreciated it. Yes. Yeah. Um, how can, how can people find out more about your work? Sure. I'm on Twitter at, at Jessica Calarco, and I also have a website, jessicacalarco.com. Well, all right. Um, thanks, Jess. Thank you so much, Stu. And thank you for listening to this show today. Don't forget, tune in next week, 5 p.m. Eastern. And if you have a question about something that you've heard on the show today, or maybe something that you heard that annoyed you or really excited you, give me a call. Well, write to me friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. You can write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Follow at SXM Business. I'm at Stu Friedman. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, edited versions of our shows are available eventually as free podcasts at totalleadership.org. There's also information there about, well, there's videos, book chapters, articles, assessment tools, all free stuff about how total leadership can help people and organizations create harmony and better performance in all the different parts of life. So check it out. And thanks again for being here. I hope to see you here. You hear us be a part of the conversation next week. Thanks to Patty Hall, our producer, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.